0: This one is an interesting one because, well, Genesis chapter 50 and those last few verses are, they, they, they start a journey, really, which begins a, a, a set of Bible passages which Bible meditation is all about. The funny thing is you start in a place in Scripture, brothers and sisters, and suddenly there's a whole lot of threads that come together, are they not? I think it was Brother Harry Tennant that said that when you find what you think might be a golden thread, give it a good pull, because you never know what other verses will move when you do so. And it's in the finding of those golden threads, perhaps more than anything else, that we know that this is the inspired Word of God. So our study begins with this matter of Joseph's impending death here in chapter 50 and verse 24, Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. I'm about to die, says the Revised Standard Version. But in the context of knowing that that death was coming upon him, he said, nevertheless, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. Now, here's the question. Where did Joseph have that conviction from, that God would surely visit them? Well, actually, it's what his father had told him, because if you come back to Genesis chapter 46, we're told this just a few chapters earlier. And this, of course, after the meeting of Jacob with his son. Genesis 46 says in verses 3 and 4, He said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will make make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And that phrase that I will surely bring them up out of the the circumstances of Jacob's own education is part of the substance of Joseph's words here in Genesis chapter 50. But I think Joseph was thinking of another episode as well in his family's history that shaped his thinking. We shan't turn it up, but you know it well. It's Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. Do you remember when God said to Abraham, Know of a certainty that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and afterward shall they come out. Do you remember? With great substance. In the fourth generation, they shall come thither again, was the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 15. I think that promise had been passed through the family. Joseph had heard that. So, Joseph, about to die himself, and here's the interesting thing, knew that when Abraham was told that they would be brought out again, it says that they would first serve the nation into which they did come and be under great affliction. They would be in servitude for a long period of time. And when Joseph's dying here in Genesis chapter 50, He knew that the time of bondage and servitude had not even yet begun. A long time still stretched out ahead of the nation before they would return to the land. And it would be so easy once Joseph died to forget the promises. And Joseph was determined that his people would not forget what God had promised. And these words in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 24 are the outcome of that, you see. He wants to remind his people. In fact, So much so that verse 25 of Genesis 50 says, And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry out my bones from, from thence. He took an oath. Now, brothers and sisters, the only reason to take an oath about your bones is because you believe in a future resurrection. You wouldn't take an oath about your bones for any other reason that you believe that those bones had a future would you he took an oath about his bones and he said god will surely visit you and he shall carry up my bones from hence do you notice the parallel by the way verse 24 god will surely visit and he shall bring you out verse 25 god will surely visit and you shall carry me up. You see, he wanted a journey with his brethren. God is going to bring you out, verse 24, but I want you to carry me up, verse 25. So he took an oath. Don't you forget now, he says. And just see how remarkable that spirit was. Well, you see what verse 26 says Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, notice the first words in verse 22, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, and these last words in verse 26, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You see, the reality, brothers and sisters, the actual reality of Joseph's life was, he'd been the governor of all Egypt for 80 years, he'd guided and protected the interests of the Pharaoh of Egypt, He'd married an Egyptian wife, he'd witnessed three generations of his family born in Egypt, he'd spent 85% of his life in Egypt, he was embalmed in a coffin in Egypt, and all he could think of was being taken back to Israel. Now there's a Spirit. You see, no present circumstance in his life ever deviated him for a moment from his burning zeal to be linked to the promises made to the fathers and to be found ready for their fulfillment by being buried in the land of promise. You see, his home was in Egypt, but his heart was in Israel. And that should be our spirit, wherever our home is. Our heart should be in the Ecclesia. Our heart should be towards the kingdom. But Joseph, as ever, wanted to inspire his brethren with his hope. You see, that's really why he did. He didn't, he didn't make this request notice of his own family. He took an oath of the nation. One just worried about his own children. He said, no, 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 the whole nation. Don't you forget now the promises of God. It's a marvellous spirit, really, isn't it, brothers and sisters? You see, why this is such a remarkable request is that when death <coughs> draws nigh... In any person's life, only the most important things remain. And this was Joseph's dying wish. It related to his deepest faith and his strongest desire. He wanted with all his heart to be back in the land and to rest in peace in that place. Many years would pass before God would visit them, but Joseph knew that it would come to pass. And he wanted to make sure... That when he was dead, they would not forget. So he took an oath. And that takes us to Exodus chapter 13, does it not? Because Exodus chapter 13 tells us about the performance of the oath, the remembrance of the oath, the accomplishment of the oath that he had taken of them. When the record tells us this in Exodus 13, at the very moment of the departure of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, Exodus 13 verse 17 says, It came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. So you see, the direction of the wilderness journey was chosen by God, not Moses. And he did it by means of the guidance of the fire and the cloud. You see, God knew their lack of faith. He knew that time was needed to develop that spirit within them. Now, verse 18 says that by divine intention, God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. Which is very interesting when you think about it, because if instead, instead of leading Israel in a direction where opposition lay just ahead, the land of the Philistines, he guided them into a place where opposition lay just behind. The imperative was to move forward, not back. And the record says, verse 18, the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Harnessed, chamosh, or as the margin says, and rightly so, by five in a rank. It's only used four times, that word, and elsewhere it's always translated as armed. It sort of echoes the meaning of Leviticus 26, verse 8, which says five of you shall chase an hundred. You see, five men were a basic military unit. And what it tells us is that Israel did not depart from Egypt as a disorganised rebel. They came out as an orderly host. They came out armed for battle. Revised Standard Version says they came equipped for battle. And marching by fives indicated order and control and discipline and a sense of purpose. When they came out of the land of Egypt, brothers and sisters, they marched as an ecclesia in divine order. And part of that sense of purpose was what verse 19 says, that as they came, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. You know, the theme of Exodus chapter 13, incidentally, is about the role and the work of the firstborn. And Joseph stood related to the firstborn promise. And this story of his bones will be found in the chapter about the matters of firstborn things. Now, when it says that they took the bones, who do you think carried the bones of Joseph, their father? Well, I'll give them the clue away, haven't I? Probably his own household, his own children. They marched just behind the sons of Kohath, the sons of Joseph, and Kohath bore the Ark of God. But, you know, the very word for ark in Numbers 3 verse 31 and Numbers 4 verse 5 and elsewhere, the very word for ark, the Kohathites bore, is the same word for Joseph's coffin in Genesis 50 verse 26. There were actually two arks being born in the midst of the tribes. One had the tokens of a resurrection life and the other bore the bones of a dead man interesting isn't it brothers and sisters march through the journey with two arcs in the midst but the journey only began with the ark of joseph the ark of life would come later life would come out of death you see Well, whoever was responsible for the actual bearing of the bones, the record's clear that it was Moses, really, who took them. Because that's what verse 19 says, isn't it? Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. So he took charge. He looked after the matter of their transportation. And Moses did so because he considered it a matter of national responsibility. (coughs) And because, as the record says, For he, Joseph, had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. He had straightly sworn the children of Israel. You see, the nation was under pledge. Joseph wanted to journey with his people. And his belief in the resurrection and the hope of inheritance in the land were firmly linked together. So when it says in verse 21 of that chapter that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to lead them by to to, to give them light that this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire were the proof that God indeed had surely visited them. He would be with them on this journey, just as the bones of Joseph gave witness to the same truth. And so at the very, at the very time that the Exodus begins, we're told that the bones of Joseph start the journey with them. So the oath that he exacted in Genesis chapter 50 bore fruit, did it not? And that takes us to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, because doesn't Hebrews say something about those bones? Hebrews 11 mentions this precise matter again, does it not? And in a very interesting context, Hebrews chapter 11, which of course is the honour roll of the faithful, we're told in Hebrews 11 and verse 22, it says, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing, Of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Well it says in the authorised version he made mention, but the Diaglott says he reminded the sons of Israel. Rodahim says concerning the Exodus of the sons of Israel he called to remembrance. And that's certainly what the word means. Menuo means to call to mind. So this was not just a mention, this was a specific recollection to his people of an earlier promise which had been made to them. He deliberately brought it to their remembrance. You see, Joseph never forgot, but what he was worried about is that Israel might. So Joseph made sure that he would bring it to remembrance, to the remembrance of his people before he died. In fact, it says here, does it not, he gave commandment concerning his bones and that phrase in hebrews he gave commandment concerning his bones is the new testament equivalent of what we read in genesis 50 verse 25 he took an oath of the children of israel or what we read in exodus 13 verse 17 he'd straightly sworn the children of israel And the word commandment here means to charge to in, to enjoin and to order It captured the focus of of Joseph's intention. He asked his brethren to promise that they would take up his bones. Have you ever thought about this in Hebrews 11, brothers and sisters? We expect Hebrews 11 to be the most outstanding examples of faith, do we not, in the lives of these people? All these men and women of extraordinary faith. So what we would have expected was the most amazing example of faith in all the life of Joseph. And of course, Joseph's life was an astonishing life. It was filled with moments of special faith, was it not? And yet the record will only mention, out of all that Joseph ever did or experienced, just but one thing about his bones. Why this one example of faith taken from Joseph's life when his whole story was full of acts of faith as a type of Christ? And the answer must be because the promise concerning his bones illustrated a faith that was strong enough to last a lifetime. That's why the faith he had as a boy was the faith he held as a dying man, a faith that lasts a lifetime, a faith that triumphed over his country and present circumstances and had a burning confidence in the future and an absolute certainty in the fulfilment of God's promises. Oh yes, that was a special faith, was it not, brothers and sisters? A faith in our hearts that will take us right from the beginning to the end of life. That is a faith worthy to be mentioned in Hebrews 11, is it not? And that's what Joseph had, you see. And the commandment concerning his bones, which was given right at the end of his life, was a testimony to the spirit of faith that burns so brightly in his heart. Well, that takes us to Joshua chapter 24 because... Just as Exodus 13 tells us that at the start of the wilderness wanderings, the bones of Joseph were dealt with and looked after, so when we come to the book of Joshua in chapter 24, we know something about how the story ends at the end of the wilderness wanderings, you see. And actually, Joshua chapter 24, and maybe reading from verses 29 and 30 to start with, it says, It came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-serah, which is in Mount Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gaius. Now, Joshua, of course, was the civil leader and the captain of the host. So he dies and he's buried in Mount Ephraim, says verse 30. But do you notice in the last verse, in verse 33, it says Eleazar the son of Aaron died, and they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phineas's son which was given him in Mount Ephraim. So Eliezer is the spiritual leader and the high priest and he's also buried in Mount Ephraim. And when these two died, the civil leader and the spiritual leader, in a very real sense the story of the conquest of the land and the granting of inheritance comes to an end. But in between those two stories lies another one that's also associated with conquest and inheritance. And verse 32 says, And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem. So Exodus 13 gives us the beginning of the journey, and Joshua 24 gives us the end. Moses took the bones out of Egypt, and Joshua brought the bones into the land. And notice this, when Israel arrived in the land, they didn't just bury Joseph anywhere. They didn't just bring him to the land. No, 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 no. They took his bones to Shechem, it says, and buried him there. And they buried him there, no doubt, because that's exactly where Joseph had asked them to bury his bones. I don't just want you to take my bones to Israel, you must bury them in Shechem, was the oath that he had taken. And we're told incidentally in Joshua chapter 20 and verse 7 that Shechem also was in Mount Ephraim. In fact, we're told here that, to be more precise, it was a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. So not only was not only were Joseph's bones buried in Shechem, but they were buried in a specific place in Shechem, in a particular parcel of ground. So this must be one of those rare places in the land where the patriarchs had obtained that piece of land by purchase in their lifetime. And there weren't many of those, were there, brothers and sisters? Joseph was buried in a special field which his father owned the title deeds to. So now we know that Shechem is the place where Joseph was buried. But we still don't quite know why. And before we can answer that, we need to add one more piece of the puzzle. If you come back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, in the law of the firstborn, we're told this in Deuteronomy 21, when the record says in verse 16, Then it shall be, when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn, before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn, that he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Now you see, right at the end of that verse, 17, when it says about the right of the firstborn, in the Hebrew the word b'chorah relates relates to the right of inheritance and in particular to this double portion that's mentioned in verse 17, the extra portion which was the mark of the status of the firstborn. So that was a law in Israel. The Bekorah, or right of the firstborn, was related to that extra portion that the firstborn would enjoy. And you remember also if you come to the first of Chronicles chapter 5, that as that story was outworked in the history of the nation and of the tribes in particular. We're told in the 1st of Chronicles in chapter 5 and in verses 1 and 2, where the record says in that place, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, and the genealogy is not to be reckoned above the birthright, for... Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. And that word birthright in verse 1 and birthright in verse 2 is the same word, bekorah, that relates to the right of the firstborn in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the double portion belonging to the firstborn son. So Joseph, it says, as he that was separate from his, uh, his brethren was reckoned here as the firstborn, because he conducted himself with all the spiritual decorum worthy of the office of being firstborn among his brethren. So now come back to Genesis chapter 33, and now we can start to tie the threads together in terms of the finish of the story. In Exodus chapter 33, after the meeting of of Jacob with Esau as he returned to the land, Uh, Genesis chapter 33 says, right at the end of the chapter, verse 18, it says, And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paden Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. It says he came to Shalem, but Roboham says, And Jacob came in peace to the city of Shechem. And I think that's probably a better translation. He came in peace to the city of Shechem. And the word shalem incidentally, means to be made perfect or whole. In fact, the suggestion's been made that perhaps this was the place where Jacob's thigh was healed. Now, whether that be true or not, it was certainly going to be the place where he would begin his life again in the land, after having been away for many years. So he comes in peace to Shechem, to begin life all over again. And verse 19 says, And he brought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent, at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for an hundred pieces of money. When it says a hundred pieces of money, the margin says hundred lambs. Maybe it was a hundred lambs, or maybe it was money to the value of a hundred lambs. But it's the same word in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. Bought for a hundred pieces of money. A chosen field bought with the price of lambs. Now here's the question, brothers and sisters. Why would Jacob seek to buy this particular parcel of a field? Well, the answer is he needed to buy it so he could own it. But he needed to own it because of what he wanted to put on it. And what he wanted to put on it is verse 20 when it says, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Yisrael. He needed to have ownership right to build an altar to God to worship him. So Jacob, having got back into the land, immediately declared his separation from the surrounding nations and his loyalty to the God of Israel. El Elohei Israel, the strength of the powerful ones of Israel. So he bought that piece of land precisely so he could declare his loyalty to God and build an altar in that place. Ah, but Jacob, don't you think, was consciously and deliberately following an example that had already been set in his family of old. Because when we come back to Genesis chapter 12, you'll remember that when Abraham first comes into the land, that the record tells us that he also built an altar, and somehow the circumstances are strangely similar to Jacob's purchase in Genesis chapter 33. In fact, notice the parallel of thought here. Genesis 12, verse 6 and 7 says, And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And Yahweh appeared unto him and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto Yahweh who appeared unto him. Now, notice the connections. The place is the same. He's in Shechem, where Jacob comes. The circumstances are the same. He's amidst the Gentiles, where Jacob finds himself, and the response is the same. He builds an altar. And probably the action of purchase is the same because Abraham most likely needed to buy this block in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7 also to put his altar. And it's here, right here at Shechem, that Abraham is told for the very first time, verse 7, Unto thy seed shall I give this land, this land right here. In fact, you wonder, don't you, brothers and sisters, when Jacob got there in Genesis 33, whether there might have still been signs of Abraham's original altar in that place. So Jacob comes, and what he really does, he pitches his tent, not just in Shechem, but he says, I want, I want that piece just there, right there, I want, want to buy that piece. I want that field in particular. You see, that's the ground that was made sacred by its link to Abraham. That's the piece that Jacob buys in Genesis 33. It was his declaration that he stood related to the promises made to his fathers. And he awaited their fulfilment through the strength of the powerful ones of Israel. Oh yes, there was nothing accidental, was there, about that purchase of that piece of land in Shechem by Jacob. And that suddenly brings us back to Genesis chapter 48 and to a little phrase that brings us full circle to where this story began, you see. Because in Genesis 48, the record says, verse 21, And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of their fathers. Ah, but that's the very story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 verse 24. I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. Where really did Joseph get those words from? He's quoting his father. He's quoting what his dad had told him in Genesis chapter 48, verse 21. I die, but God shall surely be with you and bring you again. And now we've got the basis for Joseph's urgency about the matter of his bones when he calls the nation to make oath concerning them unto him. And verse 22 says, Moreover, says Jacob, to Joseph in what incidentally must have been a private conversation between just these two he says moreover I've given to thee one portion above thy brethren which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow I've given one portion oh that's interesting above thy brethren that's the birthright inheritance isn't it of the firstborn the extra piece the right of the firstborn is yours my son The double portion. And the portion referred to is the parcel of ground in Shechem, which Jacob brought in Genesis chapter 33. And that unique site associated with the promises made to the fathers is the one special extra portion that Jacob awards to Joseph, his son, on this occasion. And when he bequeathed it to to Joseph as his spiritual birthright, He was really making Joseph his heir to the promises, wasn't he? The one who would inherit the hope of the promises. It would run through Joseph. But interestingly, verse 22, he doesn't say, I've given thee one parcel. The word parcel was used in Genesis 33, and the word parcel was used in Joshua 24, but Jacob doesn't call it a parcel. He says, I've given you a por- one portion. And the word portion here in the Hebrew is why the word shechem. Oh yes, it's that piece that Jacob promises to his son. In fact, he says... Verse 22, I I took it out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. But isn't this the piece he bought in Genesis chapter 33? Yes, it was. But you see, I think the terrible events in Shechem that were unleashed by Simeon and Levi in Genesis 34 led to his removal from this area, and at some stage the Amorites took that parcel back. He'd bought it, but he lost it because of the bad behaviour of his sons. But so important was its status in Jacob's mind that he forcibly claimed back what was already his by purchase. That's something the patriarchs, as strangers and sojourners, would not normally have done, would they? But this time he did. He said, no, I must have that piece of land back. He took it by force, and it's that piece of land that he bequeaths to Joseph. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe that that action set Joseph's heart alight. Absolutely set his heart alight. That piece of all pieces. Joseph knew the story of that piece. Now, that was a private interview, wasn't it, really, between the father and just this one son. But it comes just before the public blessings of Genesis 49 when Jacob blesses all the boys. And I think that in the public blessing, Jacob will now tell all the other brothers that that's the peace he gave to Joseph. They'll all know. Before Jacob dies, they'll all know. We know that because, you see what it says, Genesis 49, verse 22, he said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough, by a well whose branches run over the wall. So Jacob's blessing on Joseph pictures him as residing beside the well at Shechem. That's how he couches the terms of the blessing to Joseph. Joseph will be a fruitful bower by the well at Shechem. Now you might say, well, Shechem's not there in verse 22. Well, I think it is. I think it really is. How, by the way, well, let me ask you a question. You know that some wells, when they bored them in Old Testament times, well, they found water. That was good to have a, a well with water. Ah, but some special wells struck a spring below. And they were permanently filled with fresh water. Those were the very best springs. Because a spring, a well fed by a spring, enabled permanent habitation in that place. And the word used here in the Hebrew, when it says it's a well, the Hebrew word ayin, means really a spring. So Young's Literal says, Joseph is a fruitful son, a fruitful son by a fountain. Question. Who would know that the well at Shechem was a fountain spring well? And the answer is the man who dug it, which was Jacob himself. And all the other boys knew to what Jacob, their father, was referring. When he promised that, that future for Joseph, what he was really saying is, I've given Joseph above you, Shechem with its spring well, you see. Ah, now, why that's interesting is because if we come now to the book of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 4, you know that that story suddenly turns up again, does it not, in the New Testament record, and in such a marvellous way that it verifies all that we've seen in those Old Testament passages. Because, well, John chapter 4 says this. John 4 verse 5, concerning our Lord, says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So here it is, near to the parcel of ground. By the way, Sychar is really Shechem, isn't it, verse 5. There might be some argument about whether there was another little village nearby, but the Sychar of John 4, verse 5 is effectively Shechem. And we know that precisely because it goes on to say it's near to the parcel of ground, which Jacob gave to his son. So that's the parcel of Genesis 33. That's the parcel of Genesis 48. That's the parcel of Joshua chapter 24. Well, here it is in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son. And what was associated with that parcel? Verse 6. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well. Ah, so Jacob did dig that well, didn't he? It was Jacob's well, which is why he knew that it was a spring when he gave the promise in Genesis chapter 49. Do you know what's interesting about the Greek of John 4 and verse 6, brothers well and sisters, is that the word for well here in the New Testament is pege. That means a well fed by a spring. Roderham says, now Jacob's fountain was there. Oh yes, this is the same place, exactly the same place, exactly the same parcel, exactly the same well. Now think about it, brothers and sisters, how remarkable that 1,500 years after Joseph was buried in this place, the nation could still identify The parcel of ground which belonged to Joseph, the place of his sepulchre, and the well of Jacob. If there was one place in Israel that everyone knew, it was the parcel of ground that belonged to Joseph. Remarkable. And by the way, don't you think that John chapter 4 must confirm for, for us that the well must have been a spring? Because 1,500 years later, they're still drawing water from that same well. So you see, when the time for his death drew nigh, Joseph, who had spent almost all his life in Egypt, said to his people, I I want you to carry up my bones with you when God visits you and takes you home. And when you get there, I want you to bury my bones in the field that belongs to me, so that when the moment comes to fulfil those promises, the promises made to the fathers, I'll be right there in Shechem when I awake Now you promise me by solemn oath that you'll take my bones there, he says. And and you see, here's an amazing thing, brothers and sisters, that embedded in this remarkable story, the scripture records four separate passages about a dead man's bones. Genesis chapter 50, Exodus chapter 13, Joshua chapter 24, Hebrews chapter 11, the bones, the bones, the bones, the bones of Joseph. Why that emphasis? Because, brothers and sisters, in a very real sense, Joseph was at his most influential and his most inspirational in his death. His own desire was so strong that he sought his birthright even in death. And his bones were buried in claim of his firstborn right of inheritance in the parcel of the ground his father gave to him in Shechem. And that burial of the bones of Joseph in their proper resting place was the final salute to Joseph that he might sleep in peace in the portion of the, of the firstborn which he valued all his life but never had all his lifetime. A dead man's bones buried near a living spring what a parable of the truth in its hope, brothers and sisters, don't you think? A dead man's bones beside a living spring. And that faith which he had, so zealous, so burning, so fervent, his faith in the future actually carried them through the wilderness. A man whose positive, indomitable spirit lifted them up and caused them to look forward in faith. Or oh, they might have carried his bones. But he was their burden-bearer, wasn't he? He inspired the nation to complete that journey. And that's where he was buried, in the place of the burden-bearer, which is what Shechem, perhaps, really means. Do you remember these words in the second of Corinthians in chapter 4, where the record says this, and perhaps there's a touch of this story, lying in the Apostles' words. It says in the book of Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8, Is this not the spirit of Joseph of old? We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. <coughs> Persecuted, but not forsaken cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. For we which live, are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. They carried a dead man's bones, brothers and sisters. They They bore the dying of Joseph about them. But what really what really inspired and helped that generation was that, in a sense, they carried with, with them a man whose life's hope encouraged them to continue in the way of the truth. That was the spirit of Joseph, brothers and sisters. May we all have a faith so deep, so real, and so fervent that it will be with us from the beginning to the end and that even if we die before our Lord shall come, that we will pledge ourselves in death, that we sleep likewise in hope of the promises made to the fathers. If we do that, we will offer our own salute, won't we, to the bearing of the bones of Joseph. As one of our hymns says, God who cheered the faithful Joseph. In his lone distress, he who bade the shepherd Moses leave the wilderness, summon Israel from the darkness of Egyptian night, he by Moses freed his people with a hand of might. God, who led his chosen people o'er the Red Sea road, through the wilds and over Jordan, to their blessed abode, scattered them, although he loved them, he will draw them yet. For his promise to their fathers... He will not forget.